Well, welcome again. We're glad that you're with us. There's a lot uh, going on. There's, we're entering into the crazy season of life for holidays and goings on. And, and so um, just stay tuned to uh, uh, all your emails. Um, Jess is good, does a good job of keeping everybody updated. If you check your email, uh, you can answer just about any of your questions if you check your email. Um, but um, yeah, so we're looking forward to OMC. Thankful for the Stains for hosting us out at their, their beautiful house. And uh, we look forward to seeing you all there. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our series through the book of Romans. So if you have your Bible, you can take that out and turn it over to Romans chapter 9. I said it that way on purpose. <clears throat> let, me just, let me just pray again. I, we just need the Lord's help this morning. I, I don't... Um, it's, it's so easy for us to just kind of wander through what we're doing here and go through the motions. So I just really need the Lord to help this morning. So if you would just pray with me for a moment as we, we open up God's word. God, we, we're so thankful. We're so thankful for your goodness. We're so thankful for the grace that brings us all here. That we can be together, united under that grace. That no matter else, no matter what else we have in common with one another, the thing that we have most in common with each other is you as your children. And so we just praise you for that. And we thank you for bringing us all here. It's no small thing that we get to be in this room together, um, that we're not scattered uh, about running for our lives or hiding or. Um, quarantining or whatever the case may be, but that we get to be physically with one another and that you're with us <laughs> in the midst of it. It's a beautiful thing, God. And God, we just, we come before you this morning. I come before you and we just ask for your help. We are, we are not worthy to receive this truth. We're not worthy of it. I'm not worthy to communicate it, but God, we want to be obedient to you. And we want to be receptive to what you have for us. So help us. Give me words to say. Give us ears to hear. That your spirit would do what we can't. We want life. And we know that the flesh is no help at all when we want life. So it's the spirit has to give life. And so that's what we ask this morning. Um, but God, we know that you are good and you are rich and you are abundant in your grace to us. You have no short supply of what we need. And so we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So Romans, thanks to our friend Johnny for reading that for us this morning. Um, yeah, so, so we've been working our way through the book of Romans. And, you know, we, we do this on purpose. The way that we, we preach is purposeful. Because when you preach the way that we, do, we tend to do, which is we sort of say, okay, we're going to open up this book and we're just going to go through this book. And we're going to hit every passage of this book. And when you do that, it, it sort of forces you to uh, encounter all that God has to say. We don't get to just um, pick and choose the things that we think are most important from His Word or the most easily digestible or the things that we think will help grow our church the biggest or whatever the case may be. Uh, I'm not saying that everybody does that, but the, what, it, what it really does is it forces us to encounter all of the truth of God's Word as He has said it in the way that He has said it. And we do our best to just communicate that to to you and, and from, from what we believe God is saying. And so th this morning as we encounter this chapter from the book of Romans, and you know, we just finished chapter 8, which is 
probably widely regarded as one of the greatest chapters, most widely loved and accepted and wonderful, and it's packed with all these great and grand promises and truths that God says to be true about all of his people, and we just get to lavish in the, the, the waterfall that is Romans chapter 8. And it's great, and it's, we should do that. That's what the point of it is. But then we turn the corner to Romans 9, and as, as greatly loved and celebrated as Romans 8 is, Romans 9 has a tendency to be just as challenging and even divisive in some ways when we encounter it, the truths of it. Even the next few chapters are like that, where Paul is, Paul is turning this corner into these sort of really, really deep and challenging waters that are, that are sort of you know, resting on the depth and the beauty of the grace and the gospel that he has unpacked for us, that the Spirit has given him to unpack for us through the first eight chapters. And if you have, if you have your Bible, and if you, if you have your ESV, you, you'll see, you can see sort of why. If you look at the little title that they give, those titles aren't inspired, but they're just little summaries of what they think the next chapter is saying. And if you look at, in your ESV, the, the title right above chapter 9 kind of gives you a hint as to where this title, this chapter is going. It says, it's talking about God's sovereign choice. God's sovereign choice choice and that's an interesting sort of collection of words right just when we talk about something being sovereign or someone being sovereign what do we mean or we just mean that god is free to do as he wants god doesn't god doesn't answer to anyone he's totally sovereign in all that he thinks and all that he does there's no one above him there's no one that constrains him he is free and he's sovereign over his creation and that gives him the freedom to do as he pleases. And he'll, he talks about that even later in this chapter. And this, you know, this, this isn't the only place where this topic comes up. It comes up all throughout the Bible, if we're honest. Um, but this is one of the most clear and influential places where we see this topic discussed. And if you've been around the church for very long, it doesn't take long, to sort of come to this realization that this topic, that the topic of God's sovereignty, of God's sovereign choice, um, it's, it's, a, it's a heavy topic. It's a widely debated topic. Because there's, there's really kind of two main ways that you can look at it. There's, there's nuances, but there's kind of really two main ways that you can approach this topic. You can, it's kind of where are you putting the emphasis, so to speak. You can put the emphasis, the ultimate choice of God in His choice of sovereignty, in His sovereignty of choice, or you can put the, the emphasis on man's sovereignty of choice. Sort of two main, and there's a lot of, there's a whole lot more. This is just we're just cracking open the, cracking open the door here. And and I'm, you know, I'm showing my cards a little bit right out of the gate, right. I'm, uh, the, the point of this sermon is not to get into the weeds of this. We're, not gonna, we're not gonna, certainly not going to exhaust this topic in one sermon. And the point of the sermon isn't even really that topic, per se. But I, I think it's important for us to have this topic as the context of this sermon, because this is the context that we find this passage in. He's talking about this idea. 
We'll, we'll, get to the, we'll get more into the weeds of this as we progress through these next few chapters. But it's important for us to, to know, one, what we think and where we sort of land, and sort of the differences of thought as we engage this topic. If you've been around here at our church at Cross City, you probably have a sense of kind of where we fall and how we, we sort of look at the, the, the bulk of Scripture as it pertains to God's sovereignty and God's choice. We believe that God, God in His Word emphasizes God's sovereign choice over our sovereign choice. We, we fully acknowledge all the complexities of Scripture. We fully acknowledge all the nuances of all of that. We know that this is not a simplistic thing. It's not something that is without mystery or tension. We embrace all of that. Because God, the Bible does. <laughs> so, so we believe that, that God's word emphasizes God's sovereign choice over ours. We acknowledge that we also have responsibility as men. When it comes to salvation, we're not robots. We must respond to God. This is why we teach classes on this. We have entire classes that we teach on the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We hold to both of these things. We see both of these ideas in Scripture. But at the end of the day, we have to place a greater emphasis on one. But we know this can be divisive. We know it can be hard. We know that people are all over the map when it comes to their perspectives on it. This is a topic that has resulted in denominations forming this is a topic that has um, church fathers and facebook keyboard warriors have argued about for decades it's it's been it's been talked about a lot and oftentimes when we when we enter into this conversation or an argument or a debate about this topic what we're actually arguing about are what we Oftentimes, what we are arguing about is what we see as the sort of moral or philosophical implications of this particular doctrine. That's usually where the conversation tends to go. And that's not totally wrong, but it's, but it's often not based, it's not usually a conversation about Scripture. It's usually about moral implications that we think come out of what we see in Scripture. And that tends to guide the conversation largely. Again, this is not a sermon about this, so don't worry. But this, the, the point of this sermon is not to try to explore all those depths today. But I think, again, just to reiterate, it's important to bring this up because it is important context to our passage that we are going to talk about today. It helps us sort of understand what Paul is saying, what he's thinking, what the Spirit is leading him to say. <clears throat> because... Again, if you've been around church for very long, you, you will notice that there are certain sort of camps that tend to form around these particular takes or wherever you land on a particular topic. You find all the other people who land on that topic the same way and you form a little group. And you usually give yourself a name of some sort. And the thing about these groups or these camps is that there tends to be certain stereotypes that emerge out of these groups. Some of them are right. Some of them are maybe not so right. One of the stereotypes that tends to emerge about those who land where we land on this topic 
One of the stereotypes is that if you, if you believe that God's sovereign choice outweighs man's sovereign, man's sovereign choice, that that eliminates the need for evangelism and it creates Christians who are just indifferent towards the lost people. That is a stereotype that has emerged, that people hold to. They, they think that's what, if you think this about the Bible, then that logically must mean you think this. So if you, if you think God's choice is over man's choice, then obviously that means you don't care about evangelism and you don't care about lost people. And to be fair, that stereotype probably has some credibility, if we're honest. There's certain segments that that probably is true about. Probably many who identify as reformed or the dreaded C word Calvinist. We, we don't use those words a lot because we know those words come with a lot of baggage and a lot of preconceived notions and, and stereotypes with them. So we don't use them a lot. And some of those people who identify that way, they probably could be defined as indifferent towards the lost. Indifferent towards people who don't know Jesus. But what we see here, and what we see in Scripture, is that if there is indifference, that is not compatible with Scripture. That indifference, that stereotype, is not a compatible stereotype in God's Word. It doesn't exist. And so as we, as we think about this text and as we move into this sort of chapter, we have to keep this in our minds. Indifference or apathy towards unbelievers is not a compatible doctrine in Scripture. It doesn't, it doesn't go together. No matter what the stereotypes are, no matter what people think or say, if you're being honest about the bulk of what Scripture is saying, those two things, they don't go together. And we see that in our text here today. As Paul begins to write Romans chapter 9, uh, uh, this is a chapter that has been described as a tiger that goes about devouring free willers. Those are not my words. Those are John Piper's words. We see no indifference toward the lost in this text. Towards people who don't know Jesus. Towards unbelievers. But rather, we see the opposite. We see what do we see? We see anguish. We see sorrow over the lost. And specifically here, Paul's anguish and sorrow over his fellow Israelites who don't know Jesus. We, we get a picture into Paul's heart here. The Spirit is inspiring this and he's wanting us to see What's going on in Paul's heart? Let's look at our text again. Verse 1. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We don't see indifference here in this text. Remember, this is Romans 9. This is in Romans 9. The, the, the chapter that people point to and go, say, ha, see, look, God's sovereignty. 
So, so this demolishes right away in the very chapter this idea that if you believe in God's sovereignty, that somehow we shouldn't care about people who don't know Jesus. We don't just throw up our hands and say, ah, well, let God sort them out. This is not what we see. We see the opposite. Paul feels the weight. He feels the weight of the truth that the Holy Spirit is inspiring him to write. And he seems here to be actually responding to those who might think otherwise about him. He seems to, be, he seems to have some objections in his mind as he's, as he's writing this. He's considering the objections that people might have to him based on what he just wrote in the first eight chapters. Paul is an Israelite. He is a Jew. He calls himself the Hebrew of Hebrews. And he, he seems to be wanting to make sure that the things that he has said so far about his fellow Israelites in this book don't get misinterpreted as some sort of hatred or indifference towards those people. Remember, If you remember, Paul was an Israelite, he was a Hebrew, and he hated Christians so much that he was killing them because he thought they were wrong. So it may be logical for those people to think, well, if he was that zealous before as a Hebrew towards the Christians, maybe he would be that zealous back towards the Hebrews as a Christian now. Would he feel the same way, the same hatred now towards the people of Israel? Paul's saying, don't get, it, don't get it twisted in your mind. That's not what's happening here. Don't misinterpret what he's saying. These things that he's writing, because he's writing things that, seem, that probably sound very strange to the ears of people who are Israelites or Jews or understand what Israelites and Jews are. He's saying things that are that in the previously in this book that sound, that sound strange to someone. Look at chapter 3. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Now that would have been a statement that would have sounded really weird to a person who was an Israelite in that time. Like, what, what do you mean? Jews and Israelites the same? Like, that's, that doesn't make any sense. What are you saying, Paul? You're an Israelite, and what are you saying? We're the same now as the, the Gentiles? No, we're the people of God, and they're not the people of God. Why are you equating us together? You see how he's addressing this sort of thought that he's anticipating? It would have been a very strange thing for a Jew to say in that day. Because the Jews were God's chosen people, right? They were. So he starts off by saying, look, I'm not writing these things. Anything that I have said or will say, because I have hatred towards the Jewish people now that I'm a Christian. He's not writing this from an ivory tower of aloofness now. <laughs> I've arrived. I am Paul. Look at me. It's not, it's not his posture as he's writing this. Like, you, you dumb Israelites, get your act together. Can't you see what's going on here? How stupid can you be? That's not what we see, right? There's no, there's no arrogance. There's no aloofness. There's no apathy towards the people that don't know Jesus, especially the people that, by all accounts, should know Jesus. It's not what we see here. But what he's doing as he's, he's recognizing and he's, and he's pointing out the reality. He's pointing out reality for those Israelites that haven't turned to Jesus. He's acknowledging their reality now. He's recognizing and he's, he's 
admitting that they are cut off from Christ. They're cut off from Christ. He, he, he says, he admits it in, in verse 3 that they're cut off from the promises of Christ, from the blessings of Christ. They're cut off from them. See, oftentimes, when we approach this, when we approach this topic or this concept, we tend to think about it in sort of either-or type of thinking. Right? Either this or this. Either God's sovereignty or man's responsibility. We tend to think about it in sort of dichotomy ways of thinking. But this is not what we, we see. People like to simplify it down so either you believe in God's sovereignty or you have concern for those who don't believe. So which one are you? Do you believe in God's sovereignty or do you care about unbelievers? Well, that's not what we see here. We see here that correct theology leads to correct burden. And we see this in Paul. Paul does not live in that dichotomy. He's not accepting that dichotomy. Like, no, that's, not, that's not how this works. We don't have to choose either God's sovereignty or care for those who don't know Jesus or concern for them. We don't have to make that choice. He doesn't just throw up his hands and say, well, God is sovereign. What do I care? It's not what he's doing. It's actually quite the opposite. Not only does he say, I care. He says, I care so much that if it were possible, I would give up all of my Benefits of salvation. I would give up all of that if I knew that it meant that those Israelites that don't know Jesus would know Jesus. That's what he's saying. He would give it all up. If it were possible, he would. He would, he would, he would send himself to eternal punishment in hell if it meant that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, right, his fellow Israelites could know Jesus. He would give it up for them. It's not indifference. It's not apathy. Now, obviously, this isn't possible because we just read in Romans 8, right? Obviously, that's not possible for him to do that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Not even our own love and care for the lost can separate us from the love of Christ. One, one preacher says, God does not send people to hell because they love others enough to sacrifice for them. So Paul cannot take the place of Israel. He can only grieve. He can only grieve that they don't know Christ, that they don't enjoy the benefits of the beauty and the glory and the grace of Jesus. So he's grieving for that. He's not indifferent towards it. He's not arrogant towards them for not being to his level. He's, he's grieving because he, he, he knows what they're missing. And he wants them to share. And he said, I'll give up mine if you, get, if you could... That's not how it works. So here we see this blending, right? This, this rightful blending that we can use to sort of help shape our thinking. As we think about what God is calling us to, we can see this rightful blending of, of resting in, in, in God's sovereignty, of right theology, but also the right burden for those around us who don't know Jesus. We should care for them. We should care about them. We should care that they don't know Jesus. 
We're not called to just throw up our hands in apathy or, or aloofness or look down on them because they're not on our intellectual, spiritual level. It's not, not all what we see. If anyone would have the, the right or ability to do that, it would be Paul, and he's not doing that. We fight against this either-or thinking. That we either believe in God's sovereignty or we have concern for the lost. We fight against that because it's not what we see here. Paul's, Paul, the Spirit is leading Paul into to both. To embrace both of those. Intention and mystery. We must remember that anyone who comes to know Jesus, how do they come to know Jesus? We've been talking about it for Weeks and months. This is what Paul's been unpacking for the past eight chapters. How do people come to know Jesus? What does it mean to, 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 to be in Christ? It's, it's a free gift of grace, right? And Paul's recognizing what some may ask in light of what he's saying because it's significant. There's logical questions that would follow based upon what he said, right? So wait a second. If... The Israelites are God's chosen people. Does that mean that God broke His word to them? Somehow? Since there are many Israelites who are now cut off from Christ? It seems like Paul's addressing what he would think would be a logical follow-up question there. So wait a second. What does this mean then? But part of Paul's point here and what he said back in chapter 3, if we remember, he says the faithlessness of some of the Jews does not nullify the faithfulness of God. The faithlessness of some of the Jews does not nullify the faithfulness of God. He says, by no means, right? Let God be true and every man a liar. That's what he says. Let God be true and every man a liar. And further on in, the, in, chapter, in verse 6 of this chapter, he sort of says the same thing. He's addressing this point. He's, he's, he's anticipating this, this question. He's saying, hold on. I know what you're thinking, and that's not right. Just because some of the Jews were faithless does not mean that God is faithless too. God is not the one on trial. He's not the one to blame. Let God be true, and everyone else be a liar, is what he's saying. Why? Because privilege, as Paul is getting ready to talk about, privilege does not bring about heart change. Privilege does not bring about heart change. What do I mean? People of Israel had great privilege. And Paul's getting ready to tell you all of the privileges that they were given. They were given advantages, so to speak. They were given all of these things that should, that should have helped them, you would think, to see and recognize what God was talking about. In verses 4 and 5, he, he highlights all of these privileges that the people of Israel had. Look what he says. Look what all Israel had access to. They had the, they had the adoption, right? This is a national adoption where it's, it's, it's sort of different than the adoption of salvation. But, he, but he's talking about this adoption. They were, they were called God's people. The glory, God's presence was with them in the temple. The glory of God was manifest in the Holy of Holies, in their temple, in the midst of their camp. They had the covenants. These are, these are agreements that God was making with the people of Israel through all these people. Abraham, David, Moses, on and on. He's making these agreements with them to bless them. He's calling them His people and He's saying, I'm going to bless you. 
But in each one of them, he's promising this future Messiah to come. The giving of the law. We know that early in Romans 2, Paul says that if one really understands the law, you see that you cannot merit or earn your salvation based on the law. He's saying that's the actual point of the law. So they were given the law, they were given this advantage, but the real advantage was them knowing that they couldn't accomplish the law. Not that, oh great, we have the law, now we can, we can find our way to God and we can earn our way. No, no, that's not the point he's saying. A Savior is needed. <laughs> that's the point. The worship. The worship was referenced to the Old Testament temple services, right? Where sacrifices and purifications were made and priests were, were, were going between God and man as the intercessors. But we know now that in Christ, we have the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate purification. And he alone is now our great high priest. So although that was an advantage, as Hebrews says, that was pointing towards the greater, it's not found in those things. The promises, all the Old Testament promises of the Messiah that God would send to rescue the people, the patriarchs, all those God spoke to and through to tell of this coming Messiah. And lastly, he says, Christ himself. Notice the language that he uses. In the flesh was born among you. He was born from the line of Israel. In the flesh, he was a Jew. He was an Israelite. Jesus was in and among them. They had a unique opportunity to see him and to relate to him. He was right in the midst of them, but he says but they rejected him. Many rejected him, not all of them. Many rejected him. And Paul's point is, is simple. He's saying the defining question, the defining question now to determine who the people of God is no longer, do you follow the law? Are you an Israelite? Because before that's how it had been. That had been the question. Are you the people of God? Or do you follow the law? Do you have the Torah? Are you an Israelite? Okay, then you're the people of God. He's saying that that's no longer the question. The question is, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? That's the question now. That old question is gone. The new question is, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? That's how the people of God are determined. So the old has passed away and the new has come. The new question has come. Adam or Christ? And if you find yourself in Christ, you find yourself having, as Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing. You have every spiritual blessing now in Christ. Where it was once found in Israel, it's now found in Christ. So what this does, we compile all this information and we say, okay, what is Paul what are we getting at here? What do we take away from this? The privilege does not change our hearts. We can grow up in the church. We can grow up around the church. We can have believing parents. We can go to a Christian school. We can live in America. We can have more gospel information around us than any 
people who have ever existed in the history of the world. And if you're looking to any of those things to, to determine whether or not you are in the people of God, he's saying that's you're looking in the wrong place. You're looking in the wrong place. That's not where any of those things are found. Those things are good and they're great and they're wonderful and God can use those things. But at the end of the day, what's the question? It's not, did you grow up in a Christian home? Did you go to a Christian school? Did you go to church every week? Were you in Awana? Did you get all your little badges or whatever they have in Awana? I don't know. I never did Awana, but. Is that, okay, so you, oh, so you must be in the people of God then. You must be the, no, that's not what, that's, you're missing it. Just because you went to the Christian college, just because, right, all of these things, all the privileges that you had, that the Israelites had in different ways, all the, all the things that pointed to Christ and testified to Him and His goodness. Just because those things describe you does not mean those things identify you as being a child of God. There's only one way for that to happen. That's to be out of Adam and into Christ. You have to be in Christ. So that's good news for those who didn't have all those privileges, right? Because you don't have to have all those things. You can say, well, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up and go to Christian school. I didn't have believing parents. I didn't. Well, that's okay. Are you in Christ? Well, yeah, I'm in Christ. Great, you're, you're in. You see, you see how this is good news for the whole world? This is the point, right? The whole world is now being brought into this. The whole world, the intention was all along was for the whole world to be brought into this. It's open to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. It's not just one nation. That's been the point all along. So we can't rely on our privilege. We can't rely on anything else besides the one question. Are you in Christ? And I think this is an important lesson for us. I think there's there's conviction here for all of us because chances are when we think about this either or type of thinking we think about either you believe in the 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 sovereignty of God or you believe that you be, you have care and concern for the unbelievers i think most of us and most people probably tend to err on one side or the other of that as we encounter these things. And that's okay. <laughs> because, because those two things, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, those two things, they, they go together somehow. Those things marry perfectly, but those things marry perfectly in the heart and the mind of God. And none of us are God. And that's okay. None of us are Him. And that's good. So if, if you find yourself identifying and agreeing with and being able to rest in the sovereignty of God over salvation, that's great. That's really good. That's biblical. We believe that the Bible says that. But you find yourself maybe a little more apathetic towards the lost. There's, there's correction. There's encouragement. There's conviction here for you that says, that, that's not a biblical thing. And you need to ask the Spirit to help you have more concern for those who don't know Jesus. It's not what God is calling you to. 
And on the other hand, maybe you find yourself really moved by, by concern and care for your neighbors and, and the fact that they don't know Jesus. And that's, that's really good. That's, that's right and that's biblical. But maybe it causes you to, to interact with them or to go about your evangelism with them in a way that, would, that wouldn't line up with the fact that God actually is sovereign. Maybe you, maybe you question that and maybe you don't rely on that. Maybe that doesn't give you peace and rest in your heart as it should. There's correction here and there's encouragement here for you. This is, I believe, God breaking us out of this either-or type of thinking in our approach and bringing us together so that we can learn from one another. So that those who are easily resting in the sovereignty of God can look to those who have great care for the lost and say, I need to learn from you. I need you to help me. And those who have great care and concern for the lost but don't really rest well in God's sovereignty can look and learn from their brothers and sisters and say, help me, I need, you. I need help in this. We have to break out of these dichotomies. We have to break out of these stereotypes. We have to embrace what God's word is actually saying, the mystery of it, and acknowledge that there is mystery here. Acknowledge that we don't serve a God who we can nice and tidy fit into a little box and put him up on a shelf and say, okay, I have it all figured out. I've perfectly recognized and analyzed and I've come to the bottom of this whole God sovereignty and man responsibility thing. I got it all figured out. I got it in this nice little box and I put it out in the garage and I don't have to worry about that anymore. Thank goodness that was getting tiring. That's not what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to press into the mystery of it and lean into that. That's what we want to do as a church. We want to lean into the mystery of both of these things and say we believe both of these things to be true because God says it in his word. And we can't sit up here and nice and tidy uh, dissolve all of your questions or your concerns or the tensions in your heart or the paradoxes that you might think you see. We wish that we could, but those things are hidden in the mind and the heart of God. And his ways are, as he describes, higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And there are things that are in the heart and the mind of God that we may never know. But what we can do is trust him. We can trust that he's good. And we can trust that just because I can't figure it out today and I don't have a nice and tidy answer, as nice and tidy as I would like it to be, that I can still trust him, that he's good. And I don't have to operate in these dichotomies. That I can rest in his sovereignty and I can, I can really, really care about my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. And I should tell them about Jesus. And I should have conversations with them about Jesus. And I shouldn't just be like, well, I hope God does something over there in their house because they don't know Jesus at all. Well, good thing God is sovereign. Somebody, I, hope somebody, I hope God brings somebody along to tell them about Jesus. You see the problem with that thinking, right? It's like God has brought you along to tell them about Jesus. We have to break out of these dichotomies. We have to enter into the tension that God is showing us in his word and embrace it and allow ourselves to be corrected where we need to be corrected. Submit these things under his lordship and say, God, I, don't, I may not fully understand this. I'm not able to reconcile all these things in the, my mind the way that I would like to. But the point of the matter is, at the end of the day, God desires to be adorned more than he desires to be analyzed. He desires to be praised more than he desires to be pondered and figured out. He's not going to be squeezed into our limited mental capacities the way that we always want him to be and that's a good thing it really is 
if, if you could figure out everything about God and you knew all the things that he knew, wouldn't that just make you God? We can rest in, in trusting him and trusting that the things that he has shown us are sufficient for us. And the things that he is calling us to are good. And the mysteries that he has left open to us are mysteries for a reason. So we should rest in his sovereignty. And we should care about our neighbors who don't know Jesus. And we should live accordingly. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. God, this is hard. We, we acknowledge the hardness of these texts. We acknowledge our limitedness when it comes to understanding you. And for those of us who struggle with acknowledging our limitedness, God, would you, would you show us that in our hearts? Where we think we have you figured out, would you show us where we don't? And where we are really struggling, would you give us comfort to rest in who you are? Because we, we want to be obedient to you. We want to be your people. We want to live in the ways that you have for us. We need your spirit to do that. So help us, Lord. Give us grace to be who you want us to be, to live how you want us to live, to rest in the goodness and grace of who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.